Well, if you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 6, we continue through the Gospel of John. As we mentioned uh, previously, this is the longest chapter in the New Testament uh, because it describes a big day in the life of our Lord, a day full of ministry, a day full of a display of his own power, of his divinity to a, a people who seemed to be not appreciating the blessing that they had. The theme of the gospel is seen in this chapter. This gospel's theme is that Jesus is God. It's something that we will come back to again and again. And that by believing in Jesus, you can have eternal life. So in this maybe 24-hour period, maybe longer, it certainly seems like it could be longer, he fed fifteen to 20,000 people with five loaves of bread and, and two fish. Then he prayed all night. And then in the middle of the night, at the end of the night, he walked on the sea, the open sea, out to his disciples who were fearing for their lives because of a great storm. And as soon as they accepted him into the boat, the storm ceased. And somehow that little sailboat seems to have turned into a speedboat and they were immediately at the other end of the sea to where they were going. So now he's in Capernaum. He's, he's in this other place where he had told his disciples to go. And the crowd finds out and they come to him looking. Not necessarily looking for him, but looking for what he could give them. Looking for more food. Christ, of course, turns this into a teaching moment. He's always in season and out of season. He's the perfect pastor, the perfect preacher, always ready to teach and preach the gospel. I'll begin reading in verse 22, and I'll read to verse 34. As you are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's holy and inspired word? <laughs> On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias had come near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what, are this, what sign do you do that we might see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, 
but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Amen. Please be seated. Remember that this is God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you spoke these words and desired to teach your people. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enliven our hearts, you would open our minds and unstop our ears, open our eyes, that we might see and hear Jesus. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, bread. Bread seems to be a, a central theme in, in this chapter. Do you know that bread is probably the oldest prepared food in history? Fruit is not a prepared food, right? You pull it down and eat it. But bread, it requires some work. You have to take the grain and you have to crush it. And then if it's unleavened bread, you put some water and oil in it maybe and bake it. Bread is good. It's seen in the scripture as good. Bread is universal to almost every culture. I don't think you could find a culture where there's not an eating of bread. Bread is a blessing. And the Bible presents bread to us as a basic sustenance of life. You need some gluten, people. You need a little gluten in your life. You need some bread. In Genesis 3.19, you may not have noticed this. This is Jesus talking to Adam after the fall. He says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread until you return to the ground. Seems like from the very beginning, bread has been a part of the human life. Remember the, the various uses of bread we see in the scriptures. God dropped bread from heaven into the wilderness for 40 years. A wonderful miracle. Feeding the people just from nothing, it would seem. For 40 years. Remember too that 12 loaves of bread were kept in the temple at all times. This bread was called the bread of the remembrance. And it was just to be a symbol of God's constant provision for his people. Bread was used during the Passover meal, of course, on leavened bread. Leaven, yeast representing sin, was to be put far from people's houses, and they were to eat unleavened bread during Passover. It's used also during the Lord's Supper, of course. And the breaking of the bread reminds us of God's, the God-man's broken body. Also, we see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Scriptures, covenant meals that contain the eating of bread. Even after Jesus' resurrection from the dead, it's, it's said that He broke bread with His disciples and thanked God for it. He was thanking God for the bread that was given in the Gospels as well. But man does not live by bread alone. We need much more than bread to actually live in this world. 
Bread is in itself a type of Christ. He's what we need. And yet our hearts are drawn to our, our own worldly desires. So frequently our hearts are pulled to this thing or to that thing that we think will satisfy us, that will help us, that will make us happy. And yet there's only one thing, and it's Jesus. Only Jesus. So we see those themes in this text. There's an earthly desire that these people have, and then there's, there's a heavenly solution, a heavenly eternal need that only Christ can meet. Jesus is the answer. I believe that every earthly experience in your life, every trial, tribulation, every joy, every sorrow, is meant to push your heart to Christ. It's meant to say, I will provide for you. Trust me. I'm your bread. Trust me. It's to drive our hearts to eternal things. Well, let's look at uh, the Scriptures, especially as we see the earthly desires of these people, starting in verse 22. On the next day, the crowd remained the other side of the sea, and they saw there had only been one boat, and that Jesus had not entered the boat, but the disciples had gone away alone. I love how John just spells this out for us. It's like John's doing the math for us. The people, they look, they, they don't remember Jesus going into the boat. Actually, according to the other Gospels, Jesus went up on a mountain. He dismissed the crowds, and then he went up to, to pray. And he had already sent the disciples out on the only boat that was around. And John just telling us, they put these things together and said, where did Jesus go? Where is he? He's gone. So they got on boats and they went the same place that Jesus had told them, the disciples, that they should go to Capernaum. They found him on the other side of the sea in verse 25. And they said, Rabbi, when did you come here? They're asking, how did you get here? What happened? They're very interested in maybe hearing another miracle had happened, that Jesus had somehow um, warped himself over there. Jesus, though, he knew their hearts. This is, again, one of the things that John has told us early on in this gospel, in John 2.24. Jesus did not entrust himself to the people because he knew all people. He knew their hearts. He knew their motives. Again, this is another evidence of his divinity. Nobody ever had the knowledge of man that Jesus did. And he knew these people's hearts. He knew their hypocrisy as well, just as he knows our hearts today. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs or miracles, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember that whenever you hear truly, truly, in the Bible, when you see that in the New Testament, it's almost always Jesus who says it. What you're reading is just the Hebrew words, Amen, Amen, which means so be it, and it is so. So Jesus isn't speaking like the teachers that they were used to. Well, I recommend you do this thing. This might indicate this, and... There are very few options for the solution, but it could be this or this or this. Jesus doesn't teach that way. Jesus just says it. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
When you see, I mean, everything Jesus says is the absolute gospel truth. But when he says truly, truly, he's putting an emphasis on that word. We all should listen. So what does he say truly, truly as the true prophet? What does he say is definitely true? That's so important that they should listen to him. Well, he calls them out. He says, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me because you're hungry and you want more food. Notice, too, that he kind of ignores their question completely. What was their question? How did you get here? Where did, when did you come here? And he's not interested in answering their carnal, carnally minded questions, if you will. He's interested in their hearts. And here he points to the motives they had for following him. And he cannot be deceived. Even today, he cannot be deceived. He knows why each one of you are here. If you're here for something other than Jesus, you're here for the wrong things. But the essence of his rebuke is that they are blind and worldly people. They are, are, are yearning after things that can only fill their bellies. Worldly things that have no eternal importance. And it seems that they have missed the importance of the previous miracle completely. They've missed the significance of it. The miracles that Jesus did are meant to validate his message and his identity. He is the Messiah. And they also teach a lesson. And the only lesson that these people learned was food in my belly. That's it. That's all they learned. We're like that. Before we start casting stones at these Jews, we're the same exact way. No sooner does God answer a prayer then you forget it and you move on and you're thinking of the next thing that Jesus can do for you. But these miracles validated his message and they missed it. They missed their Messiah. John 10, he tells us this in verse 37. He says, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And later in this passage, he says, God, the Father, has set his seal on him. These signs were the visible sign. These miracles were the visible seal of his spiritual work. The evidence of the Father's seal upon his ministry. It reminds me of Exodus, sorry, of Esther chapter 8 when they're talking about the, the decree that the king had made and, and it's written that the writing is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring so that no man may reverse it. It's this kind of seal that God has placed on his son. He was set apart for a purpose. He was sanctified to be the redeemer and they missed it all. They missed it. They're only looking for a magician. They're looking for someone to satisfy whatever need they might have at the moment. And right now, they're just hungry. They want more food. They don't want more of Jesus. They want more food for their bellies. We all have carnal desires and earthly desires that compete with our true desire for Christ. Do you, like the crowd, when you're confronted with a need, just immediately set your mind on this earthly existence? 
our selfish or worldly or carnal desires, our earthly desires, our needs even. Why do you serve Jesus? Why do you? I remember often in my previous career, I would meet with some setback or some poor report or some failure in in that profession. And my heart was initially downcast. I thought, Lord, this is horrible. Here I am serving you. I'm trying to be a good witness and I'm failing again and again. And you know how God encouraged me in those moments? He said, why actually are you in the Air Force? Is it for your own advancement? Or is it so that you might pursue me and seek hard after me every day? You see, when when you're pursuing Christ, nothing else around here seems to matter. Your losses and your crosses are not important. Why do you serve Jesus? St. Augustine said, seldom is Jesus sought for the sake of Jesus. Isn't that true? Seldom is Jesus sought for the sake of Jesus. The man from Nazareth himself is our treasure. Him, he's our food. He's our bread. He's the fulfillment of the law. He's our salvation. He's our healing. He's our food. He's our contentment. He's our sustenance. The Rose of Sharon, Jesus Christ, he's our only desire. He's the only beauty in our life. He's the only faithful and true. Well, I want comfort. Well, I want escape from hell. Well, I want healing. Well, I want provision. And certainly all of these things are part of our inheritance. But they're not our focus. We can't be distracted like this crowd by our earthly needs or desires. The greatest gift, infinitely better than anything on this earth, is Jesus. The person, Jesus. Remember, he is a person. He's a man. He's God and man. Listen to this from Isaac Ambrose. There is an excellence in knowing you, Lord Jesus, above all other knowledge in the world. There is nothing more pleasing and comfortable more animating and enlivening. You are the sun and center of all divine truth. Only you are the whole of our happiness. The sun to enlighten us, the physician to heal us, the wall of fire to defend us, the friend to comfort us, the pearl to enrich us, the ark to support us. You are the rock to sustain us under the heaviest pressures as a hiding place from the wind as a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow in a weary land. Only you are the ladder between heaven and earth, the mediator between God and man. All other things are vanities, but you are real, solid, substantial, excellent, glorious. All other things are temporary, but you are an enduring substance, All other things are thorns and vex our spirits, but you are full of joy and comfort altogether lovely. What? Must I turn away from my sins? Why, there before me are the graces of your spirit. 
Must I turn away from corrupting company? There before me is fellowship with you and your Father. Must I turn away from honors and glory? There before me is the privilege of adoption. Must I turn away from worldly riches? There before me are the riches of your grace. Must I turn away from sinful pleasures? There before me is fullness of joy. Must I turn away from my own righteousness? There before me is your perfect righteousness. Oh, who would fill their coffers with pebbles when they may have gold and silver? Lord Jesus, you turned away from heaven for me. How much more should I turn away from earthly things? Oh, may your melting love win my heart to you and wean me off all other things. Only one thing is required. He's all that we need. These people are learning that very lesson. To pursue Jesus for the sake of Jesus. Really, in doing that, all of the other needs will be met. If you get things out of order, that's where the problems come. Jesus tells them in verse 27. He's he's gently rebuking them again. Do not work for the food that perishes. Do not work for the food that perishes. He's not denying the the reality of our, our command to work. It's a creation ordinance that we work. But he's saying ultimately the thing you need is not earthly. Ultimately what you need is me. And Jesus, he knew hunger. Remember, he knew what it was to be hungry. He experienced all of our sufferings as a man. For 40 days, he didn't eat, he didn't drink. And Satan came and tempted him. And how did Satan tempt him? Command this stone to become bread, that you can eat it. And Jesus said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He knows all manner of earthly needs. What you're experiencing today, he knows it. Not only does he actually know it because he's all-knowing, but he has experienced a similar need. So he has compassion upon us. As he had compassion upon these people. He knew what it was to be hungry. And he's instructing them with the greater truth. That they shouldn't pursue that kind of earthly food, but they should pursue the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice in here there's a command as well, then a correction. They shouldn't pursue this food, but they should pursue, they should work for the food that endures to eternal life. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. Do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need. He knows everything that you need. And then Christ said, but seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to as well. But these people just wanted their bellies filled. They were hungry. They wanted more food. If you've been hungry, you can understand that. Yet Jesus came to show them the better way. Truly, it's better to starve without Jesus than to have a full belly 
without him, to starve with Jesus and have a full belly without him. We all live to the glory of God. This is our, our whole life's mission, to glorify God, to have an eternal focus. This is, this is the ultimate eternal focus, the, the focus on God's glory. So he wants us to trust him, to trust him, to meet our needs, to give us bread every day in the wilderness every day, except for the, the sixth day, every day, bread came. What did the, the Israelites learn? That God provided for them every day. God provides for you every day. Don't doubt his providence. Don't doubt his goodness. He wants you to think heavenly thoughts. Every situation should push your mind to heaven, either in thanksgiving or in prayer. He will teach you. He will teach every true Christian to learn to trust him above all things with every trial and tribulation in life. Remember too, in the Lord's Prayer, which you should be praying throughout the day, give us this day our daily bread. We say that. It's one of the first things we ask for. We're praying that God would provide for us today. Yes, real bread, for sure, take care of our, our daily needs, but also spiritually meet my needs, emotionally, relationally. All that we need, Lord, you're the provider of it. Give it, please. We want more than daily bread, though. The first request in the prayer is what? Holy be thy name. That's the very first thing we pray for. This eternal focus in life is seen even in the Lord's Prayer. And when we say holy be thy name, we're praying that God would by his, his grace enable and include us and others to know and to acknowledge and to highly esteem him and his titles, his attributes, his ordinances, his word, his works, and whatsoever he is pleased to make himself known and to glorify him in thought, word, and deed. And by his overruling providence to direct and dispose of all things to his own glory. You see, before we ever pray for earthly needs, we're just praying, God, make your name holy. All the ways that you've revealed yourself to us in the world, we want this to be set apart as holy, not just by us, but for, by everyone who, who exists. That they might all know you. So this is the lesson that Jesus is teaching these people at this time. That they should see first and foremost their eternal need. And look to the one who meets eternal needs as well as our temporal needs. This is how Paul says it. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So how do you do that? How do you set your mind on things above? Well, Jesus meets that question head on as well when he describes our eternal need and how he himself meets those needs. He's told them not to work for the food that perishes, but for eternal life. And he says in verse 28, or they ask him in verse 28, again, a reflection of their rebellious nature, I think, or just their dullness. So what must we be doing to be doing the, the work of God? What a response. 
And Jesus answers them again with patience. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. These people need simple answers. They are not smart. And he says, believe in me. Like there's your starting point for your life. Believe in me. For me, this is a a wonderful encouragement. This whole conversation that Jesus has with these people is a wonderful encouragement to the church. He's speaking to to a blind and lost people, probably unconverted people. They're seeing only with their physical eyes. Their yearnings are for their bellies. They're craving after miracles. And yet in the midst of this, Jesus shares the gospel. He shares the gospel with them. He told them to labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And then he said he would give it to them. And I don't know of any more expansive offer of salvation that Jesus makes in the Gospels. He says, believe in me. This is the Gospel. And considering the the rebellious nature of this crowd and probably how carnal and lost they are, It doesn't seem from the text that any have made any positive moves toward him. And he still replies, receive the gospel. Believe in me. He offers the gospel to them. He offers the gospel to us. Believe in me. This is all that is needed. Certainly much will flow from that faith. Absolutely. But there's only one ingredient necessary for salvation. And it's faith in Jesus. Well, how do you believe? How do you grow in grace? How do you work for things that endure to eternal life? Certainly the practical and the very basic answer is what Jesus said, believe in me. Absolutely. But the rest of Scripture teaches us that there are things that God uses to encourage, to to foster our faith, to fortify our faith after we come to Him. He uses the Word and sacraments Fellowship and prayer. Your private reading of the scriptures and private prayer certainly encourages your belief in Christ. Submitting to the public preaching of the word of God and corporate prayer. Fellowship of the saints and the visible body of Christ. The partaking of the sacraments and faith. These are the ways that The more heavenly minded men will pursue Christ, pursue true belief in him. But often like these people, our minds are stuck on earthly things. We're just stuck down there. And these people reflect that in verse 30. They tell, ask him, well, show us a sign. What sign will you do that we might see and believe? What work are you going to perform? What ignorance and unbelief? exists in unredeemed? What obstinance and rebellion is there in, in the human heart? And really, we can't fault them for these kinds of questions because they really think that more bread is going to fulfill them. They really believe it. Just give us more bread. We'll be happy. Parents, you, you might remember uh, preparing for like a Christmas morning if you did gifts for your kids. and There's so much excitement around these gifts. There's, there's so much anticipation. The kids think that they're going to have these, these wonderful gifts and they're just going to meet all of their needs. They're finally going to be happy. 
And after they open the gift, after about 30 minutes, they're done. They realize it's not really making me that happy after all. I thought this was really going to satisfy me. This was going to complete my life. It's not the case, is it? Never is. Those who are addicted to pornography or addicted to alcohol or addicted to some other substance, your body and your flesh tells you just one more time. One more time, it'll be, it'll be good. I'll be content. It's never enough. It's never satisfying. Even good things. I remember thinking, once I got married, mm, life was going to be good. Life was going to be complete. I would finally be content. Now, marriage is a good thing. But my wife is not Jesus. Nor am I Jesus to her. There's only one thing. Jesus. But our hearts are wicked and blind. We're born in a state of spiritual death. We cannot even see the kingdom of God. This explains the cynical response of these people, of course. What signs are you going to do? In other words, show us. Show us some more miracles. Maybe then we'll believe. And I don't think that it's fair to assume that Jesus is unaffected by this, this response. He was a real man. He had emotions. We see emotion in the Scriptures. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus is said to have marveled. Marveled at what? The unbelief. The unbelief that He met in the people. So to be met with this kind of response, it's not that Jesus is some kind of immovable, stoic teacher who just all the bad words come to him and bounce right off. He's a human. And he met with this unbelief, these hurtful and maybe demoralizing words with great patience, great kindness, great love. He may have been amazed and marveled at their unbelief. But he takes this rejection and he continues to patiently teach them. And this is helpful for us as well. When you're, you're thinking, I need to, to tell someone the good news or I need to make some correction in this person's life and, and it takes courage to stand up and do that. I need to, I need to mention this thing to them. It's, it's heavy on my heart. And they hear the words and then they reject them. This is par for the course, brothers and sisters. Don't be discouraged. This isn't new or unexpected. Do like Christ. Continue to pray. Continue to pursue. Continue to love. And these people continue to to reject Him. Our Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Despite all of this teaching, they're still just set in unbelief. They want food. They want more food. Isn't that like us? Let's conclude with verse 32. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread, capital T, capital B, the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again, Jesus speaks truth to them. Truly, truly, this is critically important. Listen to me. It's not an opinion, it's a fact. 
the bread came from my father, not from Moses. And now he gives you true bread from heaven. What is it? Manna. What is it? It's me. He provided for your fathers for 40 years. And it pointed to these minutes where you are with me, Jesus is saying. The manna kept the people alive in the wilderness. They needed it or they would die. All humanity needs Jesus or they will die. Jesus is the only eternal life-giving bread from heaven, giving life to the world. And they said, sir, give us this bread always. We'll find later that they're still thinking earthly and spiritually. They're still thinking about what they can get from Christ, what they can get from him apart from him. Give us more bread. Okay, if we have to do that, just give us more bread. They, like everyone else apart from true faith in Christ, are dead in their sins and trespasses. They're blind following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What they need is to embrace the bread of life, to embrace the Son of God. Remember, Jesus was born in a town called Bethlehem. You know what that means in Hebrew? Bethlehem. Beth is house. Lehem is of bread. House of bread. Isn't that beautiful? So to embrace the bread of life is to come to Bethlehem. To be part of the, the family of God. To be part of the church of God. The house of bread. This is where you are today. With the people of God. And He's blessed us so much. He's given us what we really need. He's given us His only Son. Today, if you have not yet done this, turn your heart to Jesus. And if you do have faith in Jesus, praise be to God. Thank Him for giving you so much of the bread of heaven that, that you got your fill. That should be your prayer every day. Give me a full belly. A spiritual full belly of the bread of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. We thank You that all things truly come from You. You gave Your own Son the bread from heaven. And now You give us this, this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, to turn our hearts to Jesus so that we might not just read about Him, but we might see some visible signs of the work that He did the bread of heaven, to bring us.